Today, segment routing. What is this segment routing of which I speak? Why, it is a way to encode into a packet the path that it should take through the network. And why would you want to do that? Well, lots of reasons, including traffic engineering and service chaining. Sounds scary? Step all over everything you think you know about dynamic routing and path selection? Come on now, it is not so bad. I am Ethan Banks, and with me is Drew Conremer, your host for today's Heavy Networking. And to make sure you leave this podcast with a head full of segment routing knowledge is our guest, Ron Bonica, Distinguished Engineer at Juniper Networks, our sponsor for today's detailed look going into segment routing, SRV6, SRV6+, path computation, recovering from failure states, and more. It's going to be super hard to fit this into like 45 minutes to an hour, so I better stop rambling and get to it. Ron, welcome to Heavy Networking, and let's jump right into the deep end of the pool here. Uh, what is segment routing? Give us the uh, the 10,000-foot view. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, first, thanks for inviting me. Mm-hmm. And let's leap into the question. What is segment routing? Well, first and foremost, it's a traffic engineering mechanism. Let's say for a moment that you operate a network, we'll call it an SR domain, and you want to make these SR paths across the domain. Now, an SR path provides unidirectional connectivity, and it can follow either the least cost path or any other path, a traffic engineered path. Now, the least cost path generally, in most networks, you're going to set your IGP uh, metric equal to the circuit mileage of the uh, of a link. So the least cost path is going to be the lowest latency path. Th- that's the one that most network engineers are familiar with, the least cost path. If you think about how OSPF or EIGRP or, or, and so on converges, uh, there's mm-hmm. a metric and, and that's what we're mostly used to. Exactly. The metric is generally a function of circuit mileage and that gives you the lowest latency path. Um, but you might, um, for some kinds of traffic, you might not want to take that low latency path. For instance, let's say you know that there's congestion on a link. You might want to route around the congestion. So segment routing is a traffic engineering mechanism. Now, what makes it different from any other kind of traffic engineering mechanism that you've worked with in the past? Well, in the past, you've had either LDP or RSVP signaled um, MPLS. And in those paradigms, what happens is on the ingress node, a single label is prepended to a packet. That label represents the entire path, the entire LSP. So the ingress node prepends it. The first transit node uh, has enough information about the path to manage the label. Say it swaps the value and forwards to the next hop, the next transit likewise. So in traditional traffic engineering, you have a single label prepended to a packet. That label represents the entire path. And to forward the packet, every transit node needs to maintain per path information. Segment routing is a little bit different. In segment routing, we divide the SR path into segments, into topological segments. Then the ingress node pushes one label per segment on the packet. It forwards the packet to the first segment endpoint. The segment endpoint processes the outermost label, decides what to do with it, pops off the label and forwards it onto the next segment endpoint. The next segment endpoint does the same thing. It processes the outermost label, so it decides where to forward the packet, pops off the outermost label, and forwards it. Finally, it arrives unlabeled at the destination. So the idea is that I am telling the ingress router, I want the the packet or the flow to go through this very specific set of nodes. You're instructing the ingress router what nodes they are, and then as the packet moves to each node, the accompanying node forwards it onto the next one, and I'm getting a very specific, well-defined network path. 
Yeah, even more specific than that, in traditional traffic engineering, the packet carries one label that represents the entire path, and mm-hmm. transit nodes must maintain per-path information. In segment routing, the packet has one label per segment endpoint that it must visit. So, transit nodes don't need to maintain per-path information. Mm-hmm. They only need to maintain information about the segments in which they participate. Now, there are some real benefits to this. Um, the, the first glaring benefit is that if transit nodes don't need to maintain per-path information, you don't need a protocol to distribute per-path information. Mm. You don't need RSVPTE, you don't need LDP. Most of the signaling that's done with uh, segment routing can be done with your IGP. The other benefit is you can get better convergence with segment routing. Let's say for a moment that a link goes down in your network and many, many, many... um, LSPs, you know, traditional LSPs go through that link. Well, in the world of traditional traffic engineering, in the world of RSVP, you may have many, many LSPs trying to re-signal at once, congesting the control plane of many, many routers. In the world of segment routing, the nodes upstream of the uh, link outage advertise that link outage into the IGP And whatever party is doing the path computation, either a central controller or the um, SR ingress nodes, just need to start using a different path, being aware of the fact that the link is broken. So, okay, there's a lot here, but uh, again, going back to those transit nodes, uh, if I'm not maintaining state in them, I don't have a lot of control plane interaction there. I'm just relying on the packet to arrive at me as a transit node. I look at that label and then you know, forward it on. Um, changes that happen topologically, again, I'm not relying on um, reconvergence to change what's happening in that packet. I, that's going to happen you know, kind of outside of the domain, um, you know, looking in to uh, – I'm, I'm waving my hands around, which you cannot see, but that's, that's what's happening <laughs> – to, to recompute where that packet needs to go now that the path it was originally intended on is, is no longer there. Mm-hmm. Well, if you compare how, um, how it would work in, say, RSVP and segment routing, in both cases – you know, let's say for a moment that in your segment routing, uh, there, there are two places path computation can happen in segment routing, in a controller or in an ingress node. Let's say in this case, it's happening in an ingress node. In both cases, in RSVP and in segment routing, the ingress node needs to recompute the path. You know, that's going to happen one way or another. The difference is in RSVP, having recomputed the path, it needs to signal all the downstream nodes uh, about the new path. In segment routing, it doesn't need to signal downstream. Because that starts, path is going to be, you know, again, it's embedded on a per-packet basis. Exactly. It just starts sending packets um, that have labels for the segment endpoints they need yeah. to visit. Yeah. You've so, got it. So the benefit here is then that I am reducing sort of the computational load on the transit nodes and reducing my resource usage, and then also maybe overall reducing the operational complexity of my network? Is that what we're talking about? Well, you've certainly reduced the the load on the transit nodes. You've certainly reduced uh, operational complexity. And let's see, what else did you mention? Uh, The the path computation is not happening on the transit nodes. Well, it never did happen on the transit nodes. Even in RSVP, path computation happened either on a controller or on the ingress node, and that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. 
So, Ron, um, we started at the 10,000-foot view, and I think we quickly zoomed to uh, to about 10 feet. Sacred uh, <laughs> routing, we really started zooming in quickly. Um, so, so before we, we continue down this rabbit hole of what SR, um, how SR works, uh, let's back out a second. What are the business benefits here? In other words, I've got traffic engineering is a thing. We've been using it for a long time. People are familiar with RSVP. These are tools that are well understood. Um, why, from a business perspective, would I migrate, or, or or is it a migration from traffic traditional traffic engineering to to SR, or is SR a complementary technology that I would roll out? G- give me some business reasons why I want to use SR. Okay, um, you know, first and foremost is the simplicity. You know, let's say for a moment you've got a network, uh, particularly a, say a green field, and it's using MPLS only for tunneling. It wants all its traffic to take the least cost path. Well, you could turn on SR by you know turning on a few switches in your IGP, and you don't need LDP at all. So it's a matter of simplicity there. Because I'm taking something that was a control plane protocol I had to maintain LDP in, 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 in this example. I'm taking that out. Not that, I mean, there's still something that has to compute paths and and encode a label stack onto each packet, but that's no longer uh, running across my MPLS core, let's say. Exactly. There, there's still somebody doing path computation. Um, that path computation is, is being done either by a central controller or by the uh, path ingress node. You know, somebody has to decide where the packet's going to go. And actually, I can, at the risk of going down to 10 feet again, <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you some details on that. In your IGP, you, you give attributes to links. You say, the link is this color, it's this bandwidth, um, this attribute and that. And you flood those into the IGP. You also flood into the IGP segment identifiers associated with the link. Well, the IGP floods them, and at the end of the flooding process, every node in the domain has a link state database, uh, an identical copy of the link state database, so every node knows what the network topology looks like, and an identical copy of the traffic engineering database, so it knows the attributes of each link. Now, when you set up SR paths, you give them constraints. And the constraint might be that it's strictly routed. I want it to, or explicitly routed, not strictly. I want it to visit this segment endpoint, that segment endpoint, and the other. And in that case, the path computation is is trivial because you've already told it the path. Sometimes the constraints are a little more complex. For instance, I only want this path to traverse 100 gigabyte per second links and then only ones that are colored blue. Well, in that case, the PSPF code has a little more to do. It has to compute the least cost path that fulfills those constraints. Now, It's more of a policy view, um, we, we could say. Yeah, yeah. Now, that path computation has to be done someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, one way you could do it is let that path computation be done on the ingress of each SR path. The nice thing about that approach is that you've distributed the computation. Uh, no one node has an awful lot of work to do, especially mm-hmm. right after a network event when there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, another approach is to let a controller, uh, a central controller, 
do the path computation. And there are a couple benefits of letting a controller do that, but we'll get to that later on as we go through uh, go through the interview. Okay. So, so again, back to the, the core that, that spawned this uh, trail here, uh, business benefits. Uh, you know, the big thing you're emphasizing is, is simplifying operations, simplifying you know, the network and the, the, the layers in the seven-layer burrito that make up an MPLS network where we mm-hmm. are moving some functions around and making the overall network simpler to manage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so, so Ron, another application here we've we uh, that I've identified you know, service chaining. I know that's one use case here for segment routing. Now, you know, we, we we've been talking a bit uh, a bit offline. I know that there's uh, at least a couple of different ways we could do service function chaining, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about service function chaining with segment routing. Um, the first thing we have to do is talk about different kinds of service function instances different kinds of devices that might do something like firewalling or sampling or some, some kind of service. Well, one kind is capable of dealing with a segment routing label. So in this case, all you would have to do is forward the packet from device to device. Every segment endpoint would be a service function instance, and you've achieved uh, service function chaining. Mm-hmm. Now, another possibility is that that device can perform many service functions. For instance, it might be a server, and it may be that that device can be a firewall or it can be a sampler. Well, what you would do is assign a different label to the packet, and that label would indicate not only where the service is delivered, but what service is delivered there. Now, there's a problem that we have to deal with. If your service function instance is a server, it's a piece of software, it may well understand the segment routing encapsulation. It may well be able to deal with either the MPLS header for segment routing or the IPv6 header and extension header. But let's say for a moment it's an appliance. It's some old box you've had hanging around and it doesn't understand MPLS and it doesn't understand Old boxes no, hanging around, Ron? What? No, surely <laughs> Whatever not. What do you mean? Yeah, no. It's well, it's a firewall. You bought it. Uh, um, you know, your favorite uh, um, electronics store. Well, in that case, it needs something sitting in front of it called a service function forwarder. That box will strip away the segment routing encapsulation, send the payload to the service function instance, and when the payload comes back, put it back on. Hmm. Kind of a proxy then. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we got a couple of ways we're doing service chaining then, service function chaining uh, with that, which is yet another approach from network service header and some of the other mechanisms with tunneling that are out there to do this. I don't know if we're ever going to settle as an industry on one particular way to do service chaining, but but okay, we got a good way to get oh, it we done only here have with five. SR. I, only, <laughs> only five, yeah. Uh-huh. And counting. Oh. <laughs> Uh, what other uh, use, major use cases for segment routing have developed so far, Ron? Let's see. We've talked about um, traffic engineering, egress peering engin- uh, peer engineering, um, network uh, service, service chaining. We hit, and I think uh, I think network slicing is one we haven't hit yet. Yeah, this one is an emerging use, and basically, what you want to do is allocate resources in the underlay 
for a VPN or for a, uh, a set of customers in the overlay. And again, that's another application. It's another flavor of traffic engineering, but the criteria is just a little more complex. It's um, well, this traffic isolation here is what uh, network slicing means to me. Different tenants are getting different uh, conceptual slices of the network, and you know, it sounds like we're assigning resources in the form of segment IDs to a slice. Yes. Okay. All right. All right, so with these major use cases, Ron, um, and you know, just for sake of time, we want to we want to pack in even more information. So let's move to who's going to actually be using segment routing because a lot of these use cases that we've described sound like service provider use cases. So if I'm an enterprise, does that mean segment routing is not interesting to me, or do I have use cases too? Well, the distinction between a service provider and an enterprise gets a little bit blurry. Because some enterprises are very, very large. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say for a minute you are um, a big bank or you are a big retail chain. The odds are that even if you're buying IP connectivity, you might be running your own, your own overlay. So it's very likely you're going to see segment routing both in the ISPs and in the enterprise. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me that we would, especially in the larger uh, enterprises that are running, you know, significant backbones of their own uh, to inter- yeah. interconnect offices and you know, and so on. So I, you well, know, I get there, that. There are two kinds of enterprises. One actually does run a backbone on of its own. It, it may be renting links from somebody else, but it's running backbone on its own. Another is actually running over somebody else's IP network, but it's an overlay. So. Hmm. So with segment routing, do I need to have uh, ingress and egress routers as my source and destination, or can I get into a segment routed domain from a a source that's not part of this uh, segment routing domain? Typically, there is a security boundary around it. Um, For instance, if I were to send a packet from my house with either an MPLS label stack that represents a segment routing domain, or an IPv6 header with a segment routing extension on it, my ISP would drop it. Mm-hmm. You know, my ISP doesn't take MPLS-labeled um, traffic from customers. But when I send a packet into my network, it's very likely that at the first or second router in the ISP's domain, they encapsulate my traffic in a segment uh, and an SR path to get it from one end of their domain to the net, to the other. Okay, so I, as the owner of a segment routing domain, can accept traffic from outside that domain and then encapsulate it and do as I need with it. Yes, and you know sometimes by special arrangements, two two domains will exchange segment routing segment routed traffic. In fact, that's very common when an ISP say is running two different ASs. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case. They might exchange segment routed traffic. Okay, so that gives me a sense of the scope. I don't have to own the entire path for my SR domain. I can get in and out of it uh, without having to use segment routing. And just when the packets come to me, I can encapsulate them as needed. Yes. Hmm. Got it. In fact, think about segment routing, um, a segment routed path as being a tunnel, just like an MPLS LSP is a tunnel. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Ron, we've been talking about segment routing in the context of MPLS largely. We've been talking about labels and label stacks and pushing and popping and so on. Um, But there's another important flavor here, which is SRV6. And to distinguish even further, SRV6+. Can we describe, uh, I mean, maybe we just start with SRMPLS versus SRV6. How is SRV6 
uh, different, and then I think we can advance the conversation from there to SRV6 Plus, um, as the early SRV6 has certainly got some challenges. Okay. Well, let's talk about what all three forwarding planes, SRMPLS, SRV6, and SRV6 Plus, have in common. Let's say for a moment that an ingress node gets a packet, it subjects it to policy, and it decides that that packet should visit segment endpoints A, B, and C. It pushes um, labels A, B, and C on a, in the case of SRMPLS, it pushes labels A, B, and C onto a stack and forwards the packet. Every packet along the path processes the outermost label and pops if appropriate. But the idea is that the entire SR path is encoded as a label stack, and every entry in the label stack represents uh, a segment endpoint. Now, hold on to that concept, because we're going to do the exact same thing in SRV6 and SRV6+. In SRV6, the ingress node gets a packet. It does the same path computation. It decides that this packet needs to visit nodes A, B, and C. Actually, it can't do it in two steps. It's going to push a IPv6 header and a routing extension header onto the packet. Right. So th this is analogous to the label stack we would have in an MPLS environment, but now we're going over a V6 backbone. And so we're getting this IPv6 header with the routing extension header instead. Yes. Now, the destination address in the IPv6 header is going to be the first segment endpoint that needs to be visited. So just to be clear here, that IPv6 address, as you say, isn't exactly an IPv6 address. It is a 128-bit field, but there's more in there than simply an address. Yes, we'll get into that in a second. That's one mm -hmm. of the distinctions between SRV6 and SRV6+. Plus. The thing that it puts in the destination address of the IPv6 header represents the first segment endpoint to be visited. Then beyond that, there's going to be a routing header. IPv6 has this thing called extension headers, and a routing header is one of the extension headers. The routing header has two fields that are significant. One is segments left, and the other is a segment list. The other two uh, um, segment endpoints that need to be visited are going to be in that segment list. And the value of segments left is going to be two, because there are two entries in there. It's so, a pointer that tells the, the SRV6 node along the way which part of the header he's supposed to be looking at. Exactly. It's a pointer. And in fact, the, the segments are arranged in reverse order so that segments left can be used as a pointer. So if you remember, in the MPLS label stack, we had three pieces of information. One represented node A, the other B, the other C. Well, mm -hmm. we have the same three pieces of information in the SRV6 and SRV6 plus headers. The destination address of the, IPv, uh, of the IPv6 header represents node A. The two segments in the segment list of the routing header represent B and C. Now, you forward the packet from the ingress to node A. And here there's a big difference between SRMPLS and the two flavors of IPv6, SRV6 and SRV6+. The routers between the ingress and the first destination address don't need to understand SRV6 or SRV6 plus at all. They can just, just be plain old vanilla IPv6 routers. 
Yeah, they're just going to pass that packet through, leaving the header intact, but not act upon the header. It's like, oh, that's something with a header that I don't know anything about. It's just going to send it on its way. Exactly. And this is a difference between the two IPv6 versions and SRMPLS. And SRMPLS, every node has to know MPLS. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in the two IPv6 versions, until you get to a segment endpoint, it's just IPv6 routing. And that's because I'm using the extensions in the IPv6 header. I'm not trying to read MPLS labels. Exactly. All you're doing is IPv6 forwarding. Got it. Okay. So let's talk about what happens when the packet reaches node A, the first segment endpoint. And let's talk about SRV6 first, as opposed to SRV6+. In SRV6, the semantics of an IPv6 address changes. The high-order bits of the IPv6 address are used for routing. They get the packet to the segment endpoint. The low-order bits are an instruction. They tell the processing node what to do when the packet arrives. Now, there are about, I want to say about a dozen instructions defined right now. Mm -hmm. Some A list of of possible instructions or actions that could be taken. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, there are two classes of instructions. One class is called a topological instruction. It tells the router how to forward the packet. So let's say it's a topological instruction and it's an end instruction. It's one that says, just take me on the least cost path to uh, the next segment endpoint. Well, what's going to happen is the node will decrement segments left, copy a member of the segment list to the destination address, and forward it. And that will go on until segments left equals zero. Yep, you just said something important there. Copy the um, uh, the, the next segment identifier into the destination of the IPv6. So we, we, there is a, a rewrite process that happens here. This this would be kind of analogous to, uh, to to popping a label. Oh, I've got here. I've got to go to the next place. I'm going to pop the label. Send it, send that packet on its way. In this case, where uh, taking the next value in that segment routing header, moving it into the destination IPv6 field, and now moving it on its way. Exactly. Now, let's say for a minute that we we go past one endpoint, we get to the final endpoint, we take a look at segments left, and its value is zero. We're not quite done yet. Even though the value is zero, there is an instruction encoded in the low-order bits of the IPv6 destination address. They need to be executed. That instruction overrides the standard IPv6 uh, packet processing rules. Normally, when you When you receive a packet, you look at segments left at equals zero. That means this packet is for the processing node, process the next header. So if it's a TCP header, send it to your TCP stack. Well, depending on the instruction type, the instruction type may be something like end DT4, which means if the next header is anything but IPv4, drop the packet. But if it is IPv4, pop off the outer IPv6 header, pop off the routing header, look up the destination of the payload in a particular routing table and forward it. Mm-hmm. So those low-order low bits of the IPv6 destination address do exactly what an MPLS service label would have done in the case of L3 VPN. Strip off any MPLS labels remaining, do a lookup forward into, uh, you know, towards the customer, as the case may be. Yeah, yeah. 
So does so, this mean that, I, I, sorry to interrupt, was IPv6 constructed with segment routing concepts in mind that these extensions or fields could be leveraged in this way? No, it wasn't. And <laughs> okay. you know, here we're going to go in, into my humble opinion quite, quite deeply. <laughs> okay. Um, SRv6 actually changes some things that IPv6 I don't think ever meant to be changed. One of them is encoding anything in an IPv6 address that is not an IP, you know, the address of an interface. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an RFC, RFC 4291, that defines an IPv6 address. And it says an IPv6 address identifies an interface, period. And it also says things about what each bits in the IPv6 address mean. And SRv6 bends those rules a little bit. Now, is that acceptable? Yeah, it's debatable. You know, SRv6 mm -hmm. has its... It's proponents and folks who are um, not quite so enthused about it. Well, the, um, the lack of enthusiasm, Ron, I mean, that uh, – I don't want to interrupt your opinion here, but, the, I mean, that comes down to the sheer size of the segment routing header that can end up in there. It, it can be a monster. Well, this goes back to the very beginning. Um, the SRH, the segment routing header, is not the first routing header ever to exist. The first one was the RH0, routing header zero. It was defined at least 20 years ago. Um, you know, it was, in, it was in RFC 2460, and I think it was in the RFC that preceded that. It encoded each segment endpoint as an IPv6 address, you know, 128 bits, 16 bytes. So let's say for a minute you had an SR path with five segments in it. That means you need four members of the SID list, four times 16 is what, 64 and eight overhead? No, 52 and eight overhead, so you get a 64-byte 64, 64 routing header. And in a world where your average packet is only 500 bytes long, that's 10% overhead. Huh. So it it's just, a, you know, that's one of the reasons RH0 never took off. Now, granted, RH0 was deprecated for security reasons later on, and that's a totally different, different argument. But the point you bring up is totally valid. The length of the routing header is a problem that needs to be solved. And if that I, brings us... If I remember reading right, Ron, uh, my reading was that that header could end up as big as 192 bytes. Well, yeah, add 16 bytes for every member of the SID. Yeah. yeah so, um, so really yeah. beastly, yeah. But but I, I, yeah. again, I think as you were about to segue, that takes us to SRv6+, plus, correct? Yes. Um, SRv6+, plus, um, thinks through... Well, SRv6 Plus tries to do what SRv6 is doing, but sticking in a very strict way to the IPv6 um, uh, architecture, IPv6 orthodoxy. The first thing it does is the destination address represents an interface on a node, period. There are no instructions encoded in the destination address. The second thing is it leverages three different extension headers. Actually, two instances of the destination option header and the routing header. In IPv6, um, there, are four, there are three classes of extension headers. One class of extension headers is processed by every hop along the path. That's called the hop-by-hop -hop option. We're not going to use that. We're not going to talk about it. The other class is processed by every segment endpoint. And in that class, you can have a destination option and you can have a routing header. And the third class is processed only by the ultimate destination. In that class, you can have a fragmentation header, authentication, and, uh, encryption, 
and another destination option. So, so let's pause here for just a second. So, um, instead of overloading the IPv6 address field as we did in SRv6 with action information, um, in, now we're breaking that up into into two chunks with SRv6. If I'm if I'm getting this right, that's what I want to understand. So we've got addresses that have been un, unmolested, not overloaded with other information, and that action information is now in a in a separate header, separate field. Exactly. Um, in the IPv6 header, we have only addresses. In now we go on to the destination option that precedes. Well, let's go to the routing header first. That makes the expl- explanation easier. Mm-hmm. In the routing header, we have the same segments left field. And we have the same um, segment identifier list. The difference is in SRv6 plus, the segment identifier is typically two bytes long. It can be four bytes, but we haven't found an application where anybody needs four bytes yet. Four bytes is just there for the future. In any event, these segment identifiers have no local significance. Because of that, you never need more than 65,000 of them, so you can fit them in two bytes. So let's say for a minute, you get a packet, take a look at the destination address. It's one of your interfaces. You process the next header, and the next header is a routing header. You look at segments left, and its value, say, is 1. So you go, you decrement segments left, pull a SID out of the SID list that's referenced by segments left, and it is a key to a table. In fact, the table has a name. It's the SID fib. You look into that table, and in the table, you have an IPv6 address, and you have an instruction, a topological instruction that says forward the packet this way or forward the packet, forward the packet, you know, through the IGP least cost path to the um, to the address that's in the table, or forward it through a specific interface. You copy the address out of the table into the destination address and forward the packet. So the only thing you have in a routing header is topological instructions, period. Uh-huh. Now, the SIDFIB, um, I was reading through the IETF draft that I think is current on this topic that you and several other people have been working on, Ron. Uh, mm-hmm. Your name conspicuously at the top, so I'm going to assume it's largely <laughs> largely your draft. Um, <laughs> the SIDFIB is dis- created where and distributed how? Okay, Every node that is a SID endpoint, can, you know, somebody has to configure, yes, I'm a SID endpoint. Then it's distributed over the IGP, exactly the way all other segment routing information is. So, so like through a TLV of some sort? Exactly. For instance, let's say we're talking about a node SID. That's a SID that goes through the least cost path. Well, you're already advertising the address into the IGP. So you advertise one more TLV that says this SID is associated with it. Or okay. let's say it's an adjacency SID, you're already advertising a link, you add one more TLV to it that says, and by the way, its SID is 214. So this becomes part of the SRv6 plus forwarding process for SRv6 plus aware nodes. We still can have transit nodes that know nothing about this. They're just going to pass that uh, IPv6 packet along Exactly. Uh, they don't. Not every. Again, not everybody needs to know all state or have a copy of the SIDFIB. Just the participating members. Exactly. Let's say for a minute that you have a really old node in the middle of your network, 
as long as it knows ISIS, it will get the advertisement. It'll see this TLV it doesn't understand and ignore it. And when it gets the packet, it will see that packet is just an IPv6 packet that it forwards IPv6 wise. Hmm. So a clarifying question for the status of SRV6 versus SRV6 plus in in real-world implementations. Now, not that many months ago, I was listening to presentations on SRV6 and how it worked and so on. It seems in those intervening months, the issue of header size cropped up with SRV6 and people going, I don't want to implement that. That's just not for me because that header is huge. It's just not, not a good way for us to go. Um, and SRV6 Plus has has come up and a lot of work been done in the IETF audit and so on. Uh, so w- w- it feels a little contentious right now from an industry perspective. Where are we actually at with V6, SRV6 versus SRV6 Plus? Okay. Um, a little contentious is probably an understatement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. First, we'll take a look at the standards. There is one document in SRV6 that has made it through a working group and is with the IESG right now. As soon as a couple of discusses get cleared, it's gonna be an RFC. That's the segment routing header, the SRV6 segment routing header definition. Now, not a single SID is defined in that document. So the, the vast majority of SRV6 is still in the spring working group. And there are two very important drafts. One is, let's see if I can get the title right. Draft IETF Spring SRV6 Network Programming. That's where all the different SIDs are. In fact, it's where all of the SIDs are defined. There's also an OAM draft for SRV6. That's also with the um, Spring Working Group. And there's also a draft called MicroSID that attempts to deal with the SRH length problem. But that's, you know, that's a very contentious draft. It's, it's not clear at all that that'll be adopted. And as for deployments for SRV6, there are a couple deployments. Um, I can't talk to them very much because you know it's uh, you know it's not deployments yeah. that I've been involved in. Now yeah. on the other side, in SRV6 Plus, all of the drafts are still individual contributions. Um, they are mostly in the six-man working group. One is in the spring working group. We have one. Well, actually, we have two implementations right now, and interoperability between them has been proven. And we also have one operator carrying traffic, um, you know, obviously a limited amount of traffic and, and it's test traffic, but they're carrying it across their network. The traffic is touching both their implementation and ours, and it's going across two continents. So does this mean that the majority of segment routing being used right now in the real world would be the SRMPLS flavor? Oh, by far and away. Okay. Yeah. okay. And and so if I wanted to roll out segment routing, uh, I'm going to look for products that support SRMPLS. Yeah. Okay. I'd also like to talk a little bit about the motivations for um, going with an IPv6 flavor of uh, segment routing. Yeah, actually, that that is a really good question. Why would you? Yeah. Um, well, first, let's talk about some of the false motivations. Um, let's say for a minute you have a uh, a network that does not have IPv4 enabled. Some people will tell you that, well, I don't have IPv4 enabled, therefore I cannot run SRMPLS. Uh-huh. That just ain't true. Um, you can run SRMPLS over an IPv6-only backbone. 
know, if you think about it, all you need to signal um, SRMPLS uh, is you know, a, an IGP. And OSPF v3 runs nicely over um, an IPv6 backbone. ISIS runs directly over the link layer. You know, all you need to do is enable MPLS on the on the forwarding plane, and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Juniper has a product called SR over six, uh, where we do exactly that. So there's an existence proof that you can run SRMPLS over an IPv6 only backbone. Another argument you might have is that. I'd like to run SRMPLS, but I've got a few devices that are not as, as, uh, MPLS uh, aware. I can't enable a, a MPLS on the other. Well, there's something called SRMPLS over UDP, where you'd have an SRMPLS packet, you encapsulate it in UDP and that over IP, <laughs> so you can hop over those nodes and make them transit nodes. As long as they're not segment endpoints, you'd be fine. So the only real motivation for going with an IPv6 flavor of SRMPLS is um, that you want to have an MPLS-free backbone. Hmm. By the way, there's one more detail about SRV6 Plus that I'd like to bring up. Mm-hmm. Remember at SRV6, um, we had two kinds of instructions that would appear in an address. One was an instruction that would a topological instruction that gets you from ingress to egress PE. And another was a service instruction that um, is executed on the egress. We have another header in SRV6 Plus that handles service instructions. It's called the destination option. And the nice thing about it is the way IPv6 processes um, extension headers, the only node that ever looks at the destination option is the destination node. So all of your topological instructions will run uh, are appropriate on any node that looks at a routing header. And only a destination. We'll look at the destination header. Mm-hmm. So let me let me read back some of the uh, what you just said here as as some summary statements. Um, so we could say a benefit of SRMPLS, you you can run it over a V4 network, and a benefit of SRV6, you can run it in networks that don't have MPLS at all. Is that a, mm-hmm. a, a kind of yes. a different perspective? Yeah, the big benefit of the IPv6 flavors is you can run them where there's no MPLS. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so, Ron, there's something else we've just, in, in all of our focusing on, on nodes and headers and SIDs and exactly how we're forwarding through an architecture, we haven't talked about path computation um, other than to say, ah, yeah, you can do it maybe with uh, w- with the IGP and some of that. Maybe the Ingress no- uh, node is doing some of that for you. Um, but there's also an external controller that could be doing that for you. Could you talk us through how we're doing uh, path computation exactly, and the role that a controller might play in that architecture. Okay. Well, to do path computation, you need two things. You need a view of the network topology, and you know a controller can get that by either participating passively in the IGP or from BGP link state. It gets that, you know, BGP link state basically sucks information out of the IGP, turns it into BGP advertisements, and sends it upstream. So, the one thing you need is the view of the uh, network topology. The other thing you need is to know the constraints for each uh, SR path. Things like, you know, only route me over 100 gigabit links. Right, right. Okay, like we now, were talking about it near the top of the show, the different aspects that might make up our routing policy. Yeah. Now, the question is, why would you want to centralize path computation? In the old days, we tried our best to distribute it. And there were, it turns out there were a couple classes of problems that are best solved 
by a centralized controller. Um, for instance, let's say for a minute that there are two paths that begin at different ingress nodes, and there is a requirement that they are diverse from one another. The only way to solve that problem is to have a central controller compute the, pa uh, compute the paths, because he's only a central controller would know about the existence of both LSP, uh, of both SR paths. Another reason for having a controller is the controller be, can be collecting telemetry from the network. And because it has a global view of what's going on throughout the network, it might be able to make better path computations than you know, a distributed. Hey, this link's overloaded because I can tell from this telemetry metric of bandwidth utilization that it's, it's really getting hammered. So I'm going to divert some flows over some, to some other uh, path. Yep. And because it has a global view, it kind of has a good idea of which flows it should uh, divert. Mm -hmm. But then in segment routing, there's one specific problem. Remember in segment routing, we took all of the per path state away from the transit routers? Mm -hmm. Well, some of that per path state was information about how much bandwidth was reserved by each SR path. Well, if the transit routers don't know what SR paths are going through them, they certainly don't know how much bandwidth was reserved. Right. So if your path computation requires a bandwidth reservation, in segment routing, you must have a central controller. There's just no way around it. Because, because the those, transit nodes have mm, no idea how much bandwidth yeah. is reserved on them. So, so you've got to have a central brain that understands all the links and, and the bandwidth reservations for the flows that have gone through and can therefore then push flows across those paths in accordance with those reservations because there's no RSVP doing it for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a case of it's not simply a choice of distributed versus centralizing the control plane here. It's a case of, in several examples that you cited, you really have to do it that way. There is no other way to get the job done. Yes, there are clearly in the case where you're using segment routing and you have bandwidth uh, reservations as part of your path computation, no choice, you need a controller. Now, even, even if it weren't for segment routing, in some cases where you have requirements for one LSP to be diverse from another and they don't originate at the same node, you'd still need a controller. Now, controllers tend to evolve. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we used to call controllers network management stations. We'd use them for maintaining an offline model of a network for pushing configs out. Then later on, we started using them to, to manage faults so that have a... Um, uh, a view of how the network was doing, what was congested, what was broken. And then the final part was to let the controller, you know, would, as the controller evolved, the final part was to let it do path computation. And then once it's doing path computation, it has to push the path information out to ingress nodes. Are those the only nodes the controller needs to interact with? Is it just the ingress or do they also have to ever talk to egress or transit nodes? Well, it needs to get the network topology from somebody and it can get, you know, hmm. In a domain, any node can, uh, only one node needs to be running BGPLS and sending the uh, link state information up to the controller. You might want to have two in case one fails. Um, so it needs to be getting um, network topology from somebody. It probably wants to be getting telemetry from every node in the network 
But the only node it has to push information to is the ingresses. Okay. Because the ingress is the one who's going to impose either a label stack or a, a, a V6 header of some kind to... Exactly. To, and then send that packet on its way, fully encoded with all the information it needs to follow the engineered path. Exactly. And what it's doing is actually pushing a policy. It's saying, if a packet matches this condition, push this label stack or push this IPv6 header and this routing extension header. And so the, one of the uptakes here may be that we're talking about this controller architecture, but it's not a heavy-handed one in that the controller isn't constantly pushing configuration information out to multiple devices. It's focused on the ingress nodes. Uh, well, first, it's focused on the ingress. And second, it's not, not heavy-handed at all in that, let's say for a moment that the controller loses um, contact with a network element. Mm -hmm. The network element will keep running. It's not going to fall over and die. Um, it'll keep running with the last information that it had. It may be running in a uh, suboptimal state. Maybe the, you know, maybe the best path has changed, but it will still have a path. So what, what exactly is being pushed into the ingress router? Is there a special table that's being populated saying, you know, uh, packets with these characteristics get this header or this label stack? It's policy. It's policy that's, uh, and it says exactly that. Uh, packets that match such and such a match condition get this header or uh, this label stack. Got it. Okay. Now, going back to the controller then, so as you mentioned, it needs to understand topology and topologies change. Interfaces fail, links go down, et cetera. There's other kinds of telemetry we're pulling in. What happens when a link does fail and all of a sudden our SR path is no longer there? How long does it take to compute that there's a new change and the new SR path should be this and so on. Okay, now's an opportunity to talk about three kinds of technologies that help us out. Um, the three kinds are, the slowest is to just wait for the controller to fix things. Well, actually... To fix things, would you mean like uh, reconverge, um, something like that? Okay, let's talk about the kind of failure that, you know, distinguish the kind of failure. Um, one kind of failure is one that causes the path to change. For instance, a segment endpoint has died. Another doesn't cause the path to change, but it, it causes the packet to take a different route from segment endpoint to segment endpoint. Because remember, a segment may have multiple routes in it. Mm. So let's talk only for the moment about um, situations in which a transit node fails, a node that um, is not a segment endpoint. Well, not there a segment endpoint, but but part of the path. Something that yeah, he's he's in in the line of that traffic flow. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. When this happens, there are two things that you can do. One is wait for the IGP to converge, and in some cases, that's fast enough. Now, in this case, the SR path doesn't change at all because it still has the same same segment endpoints. It's just that the path from one segment endpoint to another has changed. And for that little, you know, bunch of microseconds where the IGP is converging, you will have packet loss and you might even have micro loops. But, so, but, but the underlying mechanism that fixes the problem for us in this scenario is, is the IGP because mm -hmm. the transit router was never part of the, the label stack or the, uh, the SR, uh, SRH. 
he's incidental, happens to be the way things were going. Oh, he's gone. IGP converges, as you said, as long as it takes the IG, underlying IGP to converge. There may be you know, a, a very short amount of time where you got some packet loss, a black hole, micro loop, et cetera. As soon as the <laughs> IGP converges, we've got it. Basically, we've got a new transit router and segment routing doesn't know the difference, doesn't have to make any changes as, as such. Exactly. And for some operators, that's good enough. For other operators, they've got SLAs that won't tolerate that little outage. So we've got something called TILFA, Topology Independent Loop-Free Alternates. And the way that works is we have to introduce two concepts, a point of local repair and a merge point. The point of local repair is the node just upstream of the failure. Now, what the PLR will do is long before the failure occurs, it will determine where a good merge point would be for a particular um, downstream node. So if are, this node... Are, are we saying he's going he's gonna to pre-compute where, if something goes wrong, we're going to use this alternate path? Exactly. What he's going to do is determine where the merge point would be and pre-compute an SR path to it. Now, when it starts receiving traffic that it would like to forward through this path, but it cannot because the path is down, he'll push a label stack that represents that bypass path. That label stack will bring the packet to the bypass path. It will be popped off by the time it reaches the bypass path. And the original label, uh, well, actually not the original la label, the label that the merge point needs to continue to the segment endpoint will be exposed. He, he does a little cut and replace kind of thing. Yeah. In fact, this is very much like um, RSVP fast reroute used to be. Yeah. It's the same concept. You have a point of local repair and you are, uh, you're dancing around it. A, a, good, a good model for it is uh, RLFA. And the idea is you receive a packet for a particular um, downstream segment endpoint. For every break, for every downstream segment endpoint, you've computed, computed a bypass path. You put the packet on the bypass path and it will get you to the merge point. And then you can continue to the segment endpoint from there. And again, the whole reason we'd use um, this pre-computed loop-free alternate is I can't tolerate any amount of, of packet loss. My SLAs won't permit that. So I'm going to fire up this process that's going to pre-compute alternate paths for me so that I've got somewhere to go in case my primary path fails. That way I'm not dropping packets. I'm forwarding across this uh, alternate path. And, mm -hmm. and, and then what happens when my primary path comes back, Ron? Do I switch back to it? Well, when your primary path comes back, you get a packet, you try to forward it as per normal, and now you can. So, yes, you still have that pre-computed path lying right. around in case the link breaks again. You just stop using it. Okay, Ron, this has been a heavy entity conversation, man. Like I said at the top of the show, I didn't think we were going to be able to get through this in 45 minutes to an hour. And, and I don't think we did. I think we went a little long. But that's... This has been educational and uh, helping not only people understand the basic segment routing, but also where we're at as an industry on this and implementing it, SRV6, SRV6+, some of the issues that are facing us uh, right now. And, and that's been absolutely fantastic, Ron. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and knowledge on, uh, on segment routing. This is, it really, it's been, it's been great. Now, 
we didn't get to talk about everything there is to talk about regarding segment routing. Like any any of these technical topics in networking, the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. So uh, is there somewhere you can direct people if they want to find out more information? That could be a Juniper resource, maybe some IETF resources, anything like that you'd care to recommend? Okay. There's a very good bibliography at juniper.net slash r. It will point you at you know, recent developments inside Juniper. It'll also point you to interesting internet drafts. Well, it'll point you to some interesting blogs, and it'll also point you to interesting internet drafts in the spring and uh, six-man working groups. So juniper.net so slash, use slash Juni- SR? Yes, use yeah. juniper.net slash SR as kind of a roadmap, and it will point you to a million other things, blogs, internet drafts, day one books, all sorts of stuff. Excellent. That's very good. And, uh, and again, folks that uh, follow the IETF, uh, Ron's name is on several drafts tied to this, uh, the six-man group and uh, the spring group, uh, working group as well. And you can, and, and these are very readable drafts. I, I did a lo- bunch of research for this show, reading through uh, some of those drafts as they exist, which states the issues in very plain, easy to understand English. So you can, uh, for, for those of you who would, uh, English as a primary language, you should be able to get your head around it. Don't think these IETF drafts are too obscure. They're, they're really not. Uh, they're really not when you put the Ron time. Ron also in wrote some uh, introductory blogs about uh, segment routing that I found very helpful in prepping for the show, and we'll include those links in the show notes. Yeah, that's, well, thank you. Yeah, those those were great, Ron. Uh, very helpful uh, explaining these things. So, so our thanks to uh, those of you that listened through uh, this show on segment routing. It's a good intro on SRMPLS, SRV6, and SRV6 Plus. And our very special thanks to Juniper Networks for sponsoring today's heavy networking episode. Without our sponsors, we, we actually can't do what we do here at the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. The sponsors help us keep all the things going. Uh, professional career development for IT professionals like you, that is what our network is all about. And if you want to know more about us, visit PacketPushers.net. Check out our subscribe page for all the different podcast shows and feeds that we have to offer. And you can also subscribe there to our weekly newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine, which will help you keep up with the IT industry. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.